Most of us know the story that is alluded to in the words that are up on the screen right now. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is interacting with a crowd and he begins to speak to that crowd in parables. And there is a temptation, of course, and I've actually heard pastors who ought to know better present it this way, that Jesus, the master storyteller, is just using narrative to communicate more simply and more clearly with common people who weren't used to fancy theological language and concepts, as if Jesus were in this chapter and others like it, giving a simple Sunday school lesson for the children to go along with the sermon that he might have preached to the adults. But here's the thing. The Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest of the sermons or discourses that we have that Jesus seems to have spoken, is spoken in a pretty straightforward way, in terms that are relatively, anyway, easy to understand. But when Jesus began to speak to the multitude in parables, his disciples came to him asking why. Why do you speak to them in parables? So it wasn't immediately obvious because, in fact, it was not true that Jesus was speaking to the multitude to make things more clear. They asked him, why? Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them to you, to you disciples. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, to that multitude, it has not been given. So the reason that Jesus gives for speaking to the multitude in parables is actually kind of the opposite from the reason that some have assumed that Jesus told stories. And he became even more specific with his disciples. He said to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And as a matter of fact, one of the stories that Jesus told that day might have been particularly disturbing to that crowd if the crowd had actually understood what he was saying. Beginning in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now sometime later, the disciples came to Jesus apart from the multitude, and they asked him to interpret this story from them. And beginning in verse 39 of the same chapter, Jesus said, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
There's a couple of things there that might be worth remembering as we go forward this morning and also as we go forward in the book of Revelation. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Jesus went on to close his explanation of this parable with a statement that's roughly equivalent to one that he used quite often in the book of Revelation, especially when he was speaking to the seven churches at Asia. In this case, he said, he who has ears, let him hear. He who is able to understand, let him understand. So, fair warning. We know that at least 11 of Jesus' hearers understood, and probably more eventually. They had ears to hear, and they heard. We, too, who have come to God through faith in Christ Jesus have been given ears to hear and hearts to understand, but I wonder sometimes if we always do. I've heard scores, if not hundreds, of sermons around the text of Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we always assume sort of an overall positive sense to that concept of harvest when we find it there in Matthew chapter 9. But I don't know if it's occurred to many of us that this harvest has two aspects. There is an ingathering of grain. Yes, in just a moment we're going to sing the old hymn, Come Ye Thankful People Come. And that hymn includes the line, All the world is God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield. But the very next verse, and this is why it is not strictly speaking just a thanksgiving hymn, but the very next phrase in that verse says, Wheat and weeds together sown unto joy or sorrow grown. When we understand the parable that Jesus was speaking in Matthew 13, we understand why, though all the world is there for the praise and glory and honor of God, that the weeds and the wheat are there for joy or for sorrow. It's not something that we like to think about. It may not be something that we do think about, at least not often. But we're going to run into this idea again in the book of Revelation this morning. And as Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Reading from the 14th and 15th chapters of the book of Revelation, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the angels were finished. So for the reading from God's word this morning, let's look to him in prayer. Father, as we turn our hearts and minds to what is a difficult section of scripture for us to comprehend We pray for your Holy Spirit to work your will in us, to give us understanding, to give us peace, and above all, Father, to give us hearts that are ready to overflow with worship, for you alone are holy, and you alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are worthy of all praise. As we come to you this morning, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Pictures of Jesus then, portraits of our Savior risen and ascended, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. These are what we have come to revelation to find And this is what we find in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, where John wrote, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And we could go through again all of the different references that are here, and we'll be doing some of that this evening. But this can be none other than Jesus the Christ, 
the son of the living God, who more often than not referred to himself as the son of man, so that his followers would come to see him as such, so that his disciples and the people who heard him as he walked around in Judea and Galilee would come to identify him as the one identified as the, by the prophet Daniel who wrote, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And if we remember that scripture ultimately has one author, then these are not just coincidences of expression. Daniel talks about one like a son of man. John, in the book of Revelation, talks about one like a son of man. Jesus described himself repeatedly as the son of man so that we could learn to connect these dots and to see him as he's revealed to us in this book. And now this one, like a son of man, enthroned. As Daniel said, given dominion and glory in a kingdom. He is enthroned and crowned, as we will see in Revelation chapter 19. Not just with one crown, but with many crowns. And he is seated on this glory cloud. He is reigning at the Father's right hand. But at this point, he has a sharp sickle in his hand. And this sickle, we've seen images of it probably. It was an implement for harvest, an, infinite, an implement for cutting down the grass or the grain in the ancient world. So Jesus is Lord, but he is Lord of the harvest. In verses 15 and 16, another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And please remember, as we've said so many times, when we read earth in the Revelation, the Greek word there is gay, and it just means the land. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the land is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, that would be Jesus swung his sickle across the land, and the land was reaped. And we should note, this is not the grim reaper. You've seen the pictures, you've seen the parodies, you've seen the comedy sketches of the grim reaper. He's often portrayed, or, or the, the final ghost in, in, in Charles Dickens' um, Christmas Carol is often portrayed in this way with a deeply cowled hood so that you can't see his face. And he's holding the sickle and he's got this vaguely demonic appearance. Well, that character does not appear in Scripture. Not even the destroying angel who went through the land of Egypt on the night when God slew all of the firstborn in that land wears that particular visage. And certainly not here. This is not the grim reaper. This is the sovereign reaper. This is the Lord of the harvest. This is the king enthroned on high, executing mercy and judgment 
on behalf of God at a command that comes very specifically, we see here, from the altar. That is, this command comes from the sanctuary, from the temple in heaven. It's important that we understand that because Jesus said to his disciples that he came to do the will of his Father. And even now, enthroned at the Father's right hand, he continues to enact the will of the Father. He continues to do what God requires of him and exactly what was prophesied of him at his baptism. Remember John, the baptizer, said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. He will be the Lord of the harvest. Of course, the full quote goes on to say, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's harsh. It's a harsh reality. But in Revelation chapters 14, 15, and 16, we are presented with this same harsh reality just under a different image. After the Lord of harvest has reaped the land, verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then yet another command from the altar, verse 18, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So first, Jesus is told, put in your sickle and gather the harvest of the land because it is ripe for harvesting. And then this angel who came out from the sanctuary, out of the temple in heaven, is given a command by another angel who comes from that same place. And he is told, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. But this time, the angel swung his sickle across the land and gathered the grape harvest of the land and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The angel gathered the grapes, and he threw them into the winepress of God's wrath, and further the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's roughly 200 miles and it is roughly the length of the land of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, an expression that pops up in the Old Testament a couple of times. And it's being used in this context either in kind of a symbolic sense, but it's also possible it's just being used in this sense to make it clear that this harvesting that is coming is going to be more than just the city. It's going to encompass the whole land. And this harvesting that is coming, this coming in judgment, will bring deliverance to some, but it will bring wrath to others. And as hard as this is, the Heidelberg Catechism wisely reminds us of this. It asks us the question, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Sometimes these days we hear people talk about other people, oh, they're so judgy. And... I'm tempted to think, you know, 
when we face people who are judgy um, and we can't handle it, what are we going to do when we face the judge of all the earth, the judge of the living and the dead? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, find comfort in that idea, and here's why. In all of my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and has so removed the whole curse from me. Deliverance, salvation. But even in the catechism, we see this double aspect of mercy and judgment in the coming of Christ. From this beautiful statement of why I can find comfort in the thought of Christ coming to judge the living and the dead, the catechism goes on to say, all his enemies and mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones, he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. There's a whole sermon in just that last sentence, particularly on the difference between sympathy and empathy, as we may have come to understand those things today. But that's going to have to wait for another time. For now, we just have to understand that because God is holy, <clears throat> his judgment is tempered with mercy. And because God is holy, his love his mercy is tempered with judgment. Even so, it was said of the Son of Man, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In the part of Revelation 14 that we considered last Lord's Day, it said, if anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And in chapter 16, which we will look at in more detail at the Bible study this evening, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, it may be that we don't want to even think about this. These days, we are more inclined, perhaps, to think that love wins. It does, actually, because God inevitably wins, and God is love. But this is how God wins. He triumphs. He triumphs over all of his enemies, and in judging, he reconciles a broken world, a world that is enslaved to sin, to himself through the mercy and the judgment of Christ. So Revelation 15 begins with these words, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete." If you want to know why that doesn't mean these angels are reserved for the end of the world, here's my last plug today. Come tonight to the Bible study. We will talk very specifically about just that. But these are the seven angels who would pour out on the land the seven bowls of the wrath of God, as it says in the next chapter. 
and the people of the land would drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed, poured without dilution into the cup of his anger. But the appearance of these angels in chapter 15 provides an occasion for something that we in the Reformed Church have been known, and quite often, to literally sing about. And that seems strange. Because in Revelation chapter 15, we have seven angels with seven plagues who are going forth into the world to pour out this judgment on the land. But then in the very next verse, John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. Remember that song? By the sea of crystal, saints in glory stand. We're going to sing it at the end of this sermon this morning. This is where it comes from. And those saints in glory are literally singing the praises of God as they anticipate the outpouring of God's wrath upon the land. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And if it seems odd to us that God's people should sing praise, given the judgment that's about to take place, we should note that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And that's a reference to the day when God delivered his people through the waters of the Red Sea. He provided them salvation as he brought them through on dry ground. And if you remember that story in the book of Exodus chapter 15, you'll remember that they stood on the bank of the Red Sea and they sang praise to God. And when the men were finished with their song, Miriam and the women took up a refrain and they sang a song of praise. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. In what way? The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's part of a little praise ditty that we occasionally sing in the church these days, but we don't often stop to think. When we sing that, we are singing about a day when God literally overthrew the whole army of a powerful nation. And he made the wheels of their chariots come off in the mud and they got stuck in the water, closed back upon them, and they drowned. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 136 puts this same event in the same light, but I'm going to read a few verses for you. Watch for the theme. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does wonders, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. And then skipping down a few verses, Psalm 136.10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. Kind of hard to get your head around. But it's a word of God. It's a psalm of praise. Give thanks to the God who alone does great wonders. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. And he brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever. Did you get the theme? It's kind of hard to miss. In all of God's works, works of judgment, works of mercy, God who is love demonstrates his love, even if we don't understand it, even if we can't see it. His steadfast love, not his reckless love, mind you. That is not a concept we find anywhere in Scripture. His steadfast love endures forever. And as I said a little earlier, this is how love wins. And in their contemplation of the matter, the saints beside the sea of crystal stand and sing their praises to God who triumphs over all. Even that hymn that we sang a little earlier, Come, Ye Thankful People, Come, speaks in a stanza that we did not sing of the final harvest home when God will gather all his people in free from sorrow and free from sin. But before that was the verse we did sing, all the world is God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield. Wheat and tares, wheat and weeds, together sown, unto joy or sorrow grown. Jesus said that's what the kingdom of God is like like a farmer who sowed good seed in his field. And then an enemy came by night and sowed weeds among the wheat. And the master said, just let them grow together side by side. Some for joy, some for sorrow. And of course, that hymn speaks of a different day than the passage that we are considering in Revelation. We'll talk more about that later. But there are some overlapping ideas here. We've been taking, or I have been taking, a preterist approach to the book of Revelation, which is to say that from our perspective today, most of what we see spoken of in the book of Revelation represents historical events. But that is not to say, let me be clear, it is not to say that we do not believe in a final harvest home it is not to say that we do not believe in the literal, visible, physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people out there who call themselves Christians who do not, but we do. 
We absolutely believe that he who suffered under Pontius Pilate died and was buried, rose from the third day, um, and later ascended to heaven. And we absolutely believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So this judgment spoken of in Revelation is something that's already happened. But there's coming a day that will be even more comprehensive in terms of the judgment and mercy of God being poured out upon his world. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I said this just a week or two ago. No Orthodox Christian has ever confessed, I believe in heaven when I die. I believe my spirit just goes to be with God and lives among the clouds. That's not what we believe. We believe that Jesus will come again visibly and physically and the dead in Christ will rise. We believe that a day is coming when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ, Christ will rise first. And we believe that this resurrection is the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And we know that this will happen because our Lord Jesus will surely do what he has promised. He has already done so in the fulfillment of the prophecies of all of Scripture, including the book of Revelation. He always has and he always will. God keeps his promises. So I'm going to ask you to please stand with me and reply to question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Please stand as we confess our faith. People of God, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead? Comfort you. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will condemn to everlasting punishment but me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. May we pray. Father, give us a reverent and holy fear of your judgment if we do not have that confidence that the very one who stood and faced your judgment in our place is the one who will come to judge. Give us a reverent and holy fear that we may turn to him and to him alone, that we may repent and that we may find salvation and life and grace and peace in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as those who have come to you because your Holy Spirit has already wrought faith and repentance in us and drawn us to salvation in Christ, then help us not to fear the things of this world, not to fear even the one 
who can destroy merely our bodies, but rather, Father, to fear you and to give you glory and to recognize that when the hour of your judgment comes, in time or at the end of time, you will take to yourself that final harvest home. Father, may we be wholesome and pure grain, having borne fruit to your glory and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.